0: Um Paul, as we come to chapter twelve, we started this text back at the end of March, and we'll come back to, to it today. But Paul has spent eleven chapters explaining the gift of God's grace, this incongruent grace, grace that is given not to the good, who are able to give back because of their virtue or because of their power or their force of will or even their position and the immensity of their sacrifice. no. God gives grace, we're told in Romans, to enemies. And the condition for the offer of grace is having nothing to offer. This is why it's such a gift. Jesus bases so many of his parables uh, on the offer of such a gift. He talks at one point about a servant who's forgiven a great debt, only who then goes and won't do the same for the other servants. And Jesus expresses what a great hypocrisy and evil this is. But the basis for this undeserving nature of grace that offers a gift like this even to those who can't or won't reciprocate, of course the beauty of this grace is that it transforms us. Grace won't leave us, in other words, like the servant that Jesus talks about. And this is what Paul is unpacking for us here in chapter 12. How do we now live in light of this immense mercy, this great mercy. His gift of mercy won't leave us where we are, won't leave us like the the servant who is forgiven a great debt and then won't forgive a great debt. No, God's mercy will transform us. So Paul says, in view of God's mercies, plural, the very nature and character of God, remember, is mercy. I am a God he says, who delights to show mercy. And that mercy he shows is manifold, but mercy by its very nature sees us as we are and acts. Mercy does. Mercy understands the hopeless condition of the object of that mercy, and it has the power to lift up, to rescue, to provide what the object needs. So Paul says, In light of this great gift, God seeing us in our hopeless estate, in the light of our inability to save or rescue ourselves, in light of all the sin, in light of all the evil that sin has wrought in the world, God sees this and acts because needing mercy is the condition for receiving it. And God is the only one who can give such a mercy and not turn into a tyrant forgiving it. This is the painful gut. Re- There's this painful gut-written scene in Schindler's List where Commander Goeth is convinced by Oscar Schindler to offer mercy to the Jews in his charge. Goeth is later seen in front of a, a mirror, looking at himself, saying to himself, I pardon you. I pardon you, moving his hand. In offering mercy from his position, however, that urging of Schindler only furthers his superiority over the Jews to whom he offers mercy. All of that then erupts in Goeth, taking target practice from his high position on the people he said he was going to pardon. You see, this scene shows how humans turn mercy into a power play, but God doesn't do this because God offers this mercy in perfect love. God is good and holy, and because God is in Trinity, he has no need. He is not driven to offer mercy in order to receive something back, because, and because God is love, he bestows mercy on, in general ways, on all of his creation, and in special ways, on his children. So God gives mercy to those in need, and he has no need for recompense In the offering of that mercy. Now this is important. So Paul says, in view of this gift, what's the rightful response? Now, do you remember your parents trying to teach you good manners? Like when someone gave you something, you are to say thank you. So after every present you would get on Christmas, you would then run and give hugs and say thank you to who gave you the gift. This is the right response. Paul is doing something similar here. He is trying to ground worship as a response to the gift of mercy. And he's grounding ethics in the same way. Like Paul will make a case for a moral vision, but this moral vision of the Christian isn't for morality's sake or for saving face like it can be for us. Like we give gifts, and in giving them, sometimes we, we, like go feel superior. And when someone doesn't give us recompense, even in the form of a thank you, we then withhold further gifts. Paul is grounding our response in offering our bodies for worship in God's mercy. And in so doing, he is giving a moral vision that we offer our bodies only In light of mercy, not to look good, not to even feel good, although those two things might happen, but because we have been made good through the giving of God's gifts. And we have no ground then to feel superior because the gift met us where? In our lowest estate as enemies. Additionally, we don't offer our bodies to be loved because we all are already loved. This is crucial because... In our world, bodies are often given to another person so that they might experience love. The currency of our world is tick for tat. You scratch my back, I will scratch yours. And the place of that giving is often in our bodies. Think about this for a second. How is repayment often embodied? Maybe in your marriage, even there is an, this embodied interplay of his needs in her needs, or in your job. You pay a fee, and that fee is then worked out in your, you are paid a fee, and then that fee is worked out in your bodies. This isn't necessarily immoral, immoral but it is the setting, the stage, of much of our efforts of earning and receiving love, respect, or recognition. Now, Paul has reminded us that God has placed his love upon us, spread it abroad in our hearts. There is no tick for tack for that sort of thing. There's no scratching God's back in the offering of our bodies. So in view of this great love and mercy, why is the only right response to present our bodies to God? Let's start with this this morning. What are these bodies? I want to make clear that your body is your physical self. Your arms, your legs, your fingers, your toes. It's also your sex, your gender. You are created in gender. Your body is a created thing. It's your heart, your organs. It's also your brain. I I say brain because in a second in verse 2, which we'll talk about next week, Paul will say, Renew your minds, and we Westerners live in the wake of a dichotomy of body and mind. In fact, we often think minds are more of the essence of who we are than our bodies. Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am placing our sense of being outside at least of at least in part of being embodied. We can often easily think of Christianity as something being disembodied. We meet with God in the channels of our mind or our proverbial hearts. This is the spiritual part of me and this is the physical part of me. But God, when God says, offer your bodies, he is actually saying, offer your brains too. The the place wherewith we understand a spiritual dimension is part of our bodies that we offer to God. The, The physical thing that creates the neural pathways that become the basis for our habits and our moving in the world with our bodies. Like we've all experienced that thing where we get in our car and we drive somewhere and we get down the road or to our destination and we realize that we've been checked out the whole time and we're like, how did I even get here? Like we didn't even think about the turns and all the things that it took to get home. We were just there. The thing that got you there is the neural pathways of your brain. And if you study the human brain, you know that when someone experiences trauma, it creates new neural pathways in your brain. You experience trauma in your brain. Your physical brain is actually altered. To change those things, you have to create new neural pathways. This is, in part, the way someone is healed from trauma. The way that we create new pathways is through embodied living, through friends and people loving us in correct ways. It changes our physical brains. Mental illness, too, isn't something we just think. It's actually physical, something that happens to an organ in our body. Now, I say all this because I think that we can forget that the thinking element of all of us is grounded in a body. And like our arms and legs, our brain is part of that body. And this is what you offer to God. Second, point two, why these bodies? Because as Bavink says, bodies are the way we move in the world. All the doing and acting in the world is through our bodies. What Paul is saying to us is that the whole enterprise of Christianity is lived in body. There is not one aspect of this life as a Christian that is lived in some other estate. You and I were meant to be embodied. When you die, you are present with God in paradise, But let me say this. This is not how it should be. And hear what I mean. In fact, you being separated from your body and being with God in paradise is unnatural. And it's the work of God of the powers of sin. Sin separates us from God and separates us from our bodies. Death is so tragic, at least in part, because our bodies weren't supposed to die. And heaven is the place of the dead as we await what? the resurrection of our bodies, but it's not you being separated from your body is not the way it should be. You see, friends, you are not simply souls or spirits encased in something that you need to be free of. You are not just thinking brains on a stick. This is vitally important if we are to understand why and how we are to offer our bodies. You see, if bodies are just some sort of material that encases some greater essence, then what you do with your body is truly immaterial. If it's just material that encases some essence, then sexuality is really about discovering something less messy and more transcendent. Gender really is fluid. Bodies are just lower stuff. Arriving at a higher plane of of transcendence is what life would be about. So if we can learn something from divorce, then divorce is really worth it. That's what matters, the higher spiritual plane. Growing spiritually is the goal. If I can just learn something from this, become better through this, reach a deeper place of meaning and connection with God, then who cares about my body? If this is true, then your body doesn't matter. But John Stott provides a corrective here. He says, No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. You see, Paul would agree because you are a body, and everything you do in this world is in that body. In 2 Corinthians 5, the verses will be on the screen, I won't read them, but Paul will say we are to groan for the redemption of these bodies, that we will all stand before God and be judged by what we do in these bodies, and that these bodies will die and will be swallowed up by life, and that the Holy Spirit is actually a guarantee of the life that will swallow up our bodies. Isn't that interesting that Paul makes this connection between the Spirit and the resurrection of bodies? The giving of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul here in 2 Corinthians 5, is the first fruits of the resurrection of the body. The Spirit comes and is given as a gift to prompt us to be certain that these bodies that will die will be raised from the dead. This is why the body is to be offered in view of God's mercy, because the body will be raised from the dead, because the body is how Christ lives, and from now and into eternity, because the body is the created image of God, and we are created to be embodied, and your body is your whole self that you present to God, because all your living and thinking and believing happens inside your body, and this is why we offer it to God in view of God's mercy. And this leads to the last point, point three. How are we to present our bodies? Well, Paul says it, by the mercy of God. God's mercy is the thing that lets you present your body to him. It's not the law, but mercy. Now, what does offering your body based on the law look like? Well, there, because there is law, by the way, like if I give my body, then I get, right? Again, we're back to this idea of tick for tack. If I don't give my body, then there is a consequence. And this is true, by the way, at least in this part, like if we present our bodies to something glorious, like my body, my castle, then what we do in my, our, uh, with the castle, what do we do when the castle of our body erodes? Like worship the body, We die a thousand deaths when someone is prettier or healthier or more fit. We die a thousand deaths at every new blemish. This is the little l law of the body. Like, there is a truth in offering our body based on the lie. Like, there is a consequence for cake. Like, whenever you eat cake, there's a consequence for eating that cake. That is the little L law of our body. We can, we can also offer our bodies, by the way, without love. Paul touches upon this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I offer my body to be burned, but have not love, it is nothing. This is related to this understanding of the law. Offering our bodies out of law. We offer our bodies without love, with, within the purview of maybe being a martyr. Like a great sacrifice. And do it in such a way that makes the offering of it worthless or nothing. Doing it without love, Paul says. You might say that it doesn't, doesn't offering your body by its very nature make it love. Well, Paul says no. Now, how many of you are martyrs in your own home? Or, ser- or served parents who regularly made you away of the ways that they were suffering for you? Did they instill love or duty into you? Now, I'll come back to that in a second, but let me be clear. It is a mercy of God for us to be lovers of God. It is a mercy of God for us to be able to be servants of God and other people. God is letting us be a giver, and this is his gift of mercy to you. This is something you get to do. God's mercy lets you do this. God's mercy lets you live sacrificially. And if it's God's mercy, then it is a light burden of worship. Hear this. The hard yoke is getting people to do your bidding, like the martyrdom mom or dad, Where they use some form of control or manipulation to get you to do what you want to do. And often this is by your body. If you provoke people in this way, they will not love well. They will not be there for you when you need them. You will never know if you've done enough. You see, that's the hard yoke. And so when God says to offer your bodies as a spiritual act of worship, what he's telling all of us, that that yoke is a light yoke. Paul is making the connection that we offer our bodies as an act of worship. We offer our bodies as an offering. Paul says that this is a spiritual act of worship. But what we should understand is that it is the most make-sense sort of way to respond to a God who is merciful to pledge all of us based on the gift of mercy is the only thing to make that makes sense and this is more of what Paul is saying here and it isn't just duty here like, like we often like to think of sacrifice and offering our bodies as duty it is it, it is only it only makes sense to offer our bodies as duty if there is delight John Piper tells this story right about and I've, I've probably told it here at least once or twice but what if he showed up at the door of his house to Noel's door and knocked on the door and he has flowers behind his back and as she opens the door, he holds out the flowers to her. Surprise, I got you flowers. And she responds, Noel responds to John and goes, well, well, why did you do this? Like, these are beautiful. I can't believe you did this for me. Why would you do this? It's not our anniversary. It's not my birthday. Why did you do this? And John replies, well, what if I said, because I had to? It's my duty as your husband. Well, the, the interplay would quickly be door slammed or flowers broken. But we often think about God this way. Like we, we think about God in, in a debtor's ethic sort of way. Like if we, if we repay you, God, for, for you offering your body to us, like we're, we're going to do, do this out of duty. And this is very American, by the way. It, it's emblazoned into us through our military. They make sacrifices, and the response is, so should we. Like if you've seen Saving Private Ryan where Tom Hanks is dying and the young Matt Damon is there at his side. And what does he say to them in that critical moment of the film? He looks at them in the eyes and he says, earn this. Burn this. In other words, all these guys died for you. Now go and earn it. And that's the vision that Damon's character has as he stands at the the, the cemetery at Normandy. And he asks the question of his wife, did he live a good life? Did he earn the sacrifice and do it? You see, we make the giving of our bodies as a debtor's ethic with God. But Luke reminds us of Paul's words in Acts at the Areopagus. He says the following, the God who made the world... And everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands. And hear this, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. Now let me tease this out some more. One aspect of the mercy of God is rest, the light burden. Worship is rest think about this. God. Our whole worship service, every time we gather, is based on this understanding that God is the one who gives and we are the ones who receive. It's the pattern of our worship. We respond to God's giving. God is the giver. He doesn't need our worship. God calls us to worship. He invites us to respond to what we see in him and then ourselves with confession. He offers us then forgiveness. He invites us to hear from his word. He gives it though however freely without cost. He then feeds us from the table and sends us out in blessing. All of this is rest. And Sabbath is a day of rest. It was made for man, God says. It's all gifts. The worship, then, is the foundation of this kind of worship is the foundation of all work in the world. It's all a gift, all grace. This worship is the light burden. It's the shalom of God offered, wholeness and rest. And God gives this to us because he's merciful. It's bound up in his name. I am who I am. I am merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. This is God, and through this, he gives us peace, And that peace that he gives in and through worship is in our bodies. He he gives us internal peace in our bodies. Those moments when you cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Now, I I may have mentioned this a few weeks ago, but one practice that I've started to do regularly is stopping and slowing down and giving my cares to God. Like like when I feel restless and no peace, when I'm anxious about something in my life, I stop, I pause, not not all the time. I stop, I pause, I breathe, and then I give everyone and everything to him. I do that because he cares for me. You see, this is the light burden of offering our bodies to the Lord. He doesn't just give internal peace, he also can give external peace, safety and security. In Psalm 16, the psalmist, when he offers himself to the Lord and takes refuge in him, the psalmist says, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, and my body dwells secure. This is the peace that God gives, and it is in and to us in our bodies. Think about this week, friends. How many times you have felt internally not at rest or externally threatened? In those moments, the reality is is that as we offer ourselves back to God in those uncertain and unsure moments, That God comes around us and offers us internal and external peace. Now, that does not necessarily mean that you will feel that immediately in the moment. But that our offering of our bodies back to God is always in the sense that God, through that mechanism, gives us back shalom. It comes from the Lord's offering of himself to us. The psalmist will say, he is our portion, our cup. And from us taking refuge in him, we receive this peace. Now, when we demand peace, now I do this sometimes as a dad. Like when someone needs something from me, but I either refuse to give it because I'm too busy on some project or too busy with some work or too distracted with something online or a game that's on TV. Or when something tries to violate my peace and then I tried to demand it, what happens in those instances? Well, well, the very peace I seek, I often don't receive. It might be temporary peace that I get, but there's an internal lack of peace in those moments. Uh, Ryan Davis shared this quote from Sam Bush with me. and he said, Sam's a writer. He says the following, Jesus does not invite you to leave your best life or discover your true self. Instead, he bids you come and die. After all, a God who's Only modus operandi is death and resurrection cannot first do anything with you other than to put you in the grave. Try as you might, you cannot survive your own salvation. And that's what happens when I'm sitting there on the couch and I want peace. I am trying to get my own salvation. I'm not willing to die to self, to offer my body as an act of worship to God for someone else because I don't want to live in the incongruity of that or whatever else, the, 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 the being upset by that. The realization of your are powerless over yourself in your life may just be what dying to yourself looks like. Let me repeat that. The realization of your powerlessness over yourself and your life may just be what dying to yourself looks like. It's an introduction to it at the very least. Suddenly, you might not be so obsessed with how it's going to end when you realize that your chief end is to be loved by God and to enjoy his gifts in the present. At least that's how God sees it. You exist, friends, in order to be loved by God. This is the light burden. This is the pathway to shalom. We get to offer our bodies. Why? Because when we offer our bodies in worship, we receive the light burden we receive resurrection life. We get shalom. Now, don't hear me as though this is law. This is all grace. God gives and it is his fruits. The fruit of, gra- of the grain of wheat dying in the earth is the life of Christ. And we are invited to model, to unite ourselves to him and model that light, life. And it is, Jesus tells us, the light burden. This offering of our bodies is pleasing to God. This is so significant. Friends, hear me this morning. God is pleased with you in your body. I don't know what imperfections about your body plague you, but I have a few. Maybe you've offered your body to another human and have had it rejected. There are a few things more painful. The rejection of our bodies create painful wounds. I still remember being on the tires in seventh grade. I remember what I was wearing, and I remember what the girl who called me fat was wearing. The rejection of your body makes for painful wounds. And it isn't just that how you feel about your bodies, maybe because of that rejection or maybe just because how you see yourself in your body. Like, I can get so disgusted with my own body that I don't want to be seen with certain angles of that body in a mirror or on a screen. We can be so displeased with our bodies that we then act out of these bodies in such shame that produces further hatred of our body. Doing something to it or with it We then feel even greater degrees of shame about what we did and about the body with which we did it. And so physical flaws then dominate our life. Sam Ellery shares this. One of the biggest British movies of the 90s was the comedy The Full Monty about a group of unemployed men in North England who decide to become male strippers. One of them, Dave, is overweight and in a moment of doubt says to his wife, look at me, who wants to see this? It is a sentiment Many of us echo. We feel self-conscious about our bodies precisely because we suspect it would not be pleasing to others if they were seen. But hear me this morning. A body offered to God is a body that is pleasing to God. God will not reject you in your body. So we offer our bodies. Romans 6, Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You are members to God as instruments for righteousness. How do you offer your body to other things? Like in the past month, What have you given your body to? The physical apparatus, the working of your brain. To exercise? To food? To feasting? To sex? To work? To time with family, friends? To leisure activities? Think through your week. How have you offered your body? Paul says in the same way that you offer your members to such things, you should offer your bodies to God. What have you kept your body from? You can only be in one place at one time. You only have one body. No matter how much we might think we can exist in a a multiverse kind of way, we can't. We can only be present to one thing in one person. What have you offered your bodies to? Often these can be good and enjoyable things. But what I want you to see is how you offer it. You offer them oftentimes with joy and delight, with rigor and thought and attention and energy. Like we offer our bodies to something. We run and we feel God's pleasure. Paul says that's how you offer your bodies to God. But you do it because you've been brought from death to life. And that's changed us. That's changed what we have joy and delight, what we give our rigor and our thought and our attention to and our energy to, or at least it should, or at least it's working in process to, in doing. Paul will say, I, I buffet my body and make it my slave, and he uses the example of an athletic victory. In the same way, we offer our bodies to God. It's also a check. Don't offer your bodies to something that would destroy that body. In other places, Paul says, sinning against the body, that's the sort of action that has detrimental consequences. Like, let's talk about alcohol as an example. Here at City Press, we think alcohol is a good thing. It is a gift from God. It is good to be enjoyed. It's good for the body until it isn't. At some point, alcohol can have a very negative effect on your body. And when you get to places where you have dependence upon it in your body, what happens in your brain? What happens to the chemical makeup of your body? Why is it so difficult to break? Because your body has kept score. It keeps score of the things that you do and the things done to you. It keeps score of not just alcohol, but of mental anguish. You feel things like post-traumatic stress in your body. You see, sin you do to your body and sin done to your body. Trauma little T and trauma big T, all those effects are felt in your body. And that's what Paul is trying to press upon us when he says, how do you offer it? You offer it to God, not to all these other things that will destroy your body but to the one who has taken you from death to life. Paul puts it in the negative, in the positive. Sin is not to reign in your body. It once did before you belonged to Christ, but now Christ's life reigns in you. And with this transfer of ownership comes the transfer of every part of your body. Your members are now not presented to sin to be used for an unrighteous agenda, but they're to be presented to God for his agenda. And Paul shows us why and how this switch of allegiance can be made. Present yourself to God as, though as those who have been brought from death to life. We have been made new. as like we recited in the Heidelberg this morning. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. And then it outlays all the reasons why this is a good and restful thing. And we still wait for the redemption of our bodies. They will be made new in due course. But that does not mean it's a spiritual write-off until then. Even now today, the invitation for you and I is to offer our bodies to God as instruments for righteousness. And hear this, God will never reject your body offered to him. Because as Paul says, these bodies are holy and blameless. God has redeemed you in your body, and thus God has redeemed your body. And now we offer these bodies as holy and blameless back to God. Your body, friends, is blameless. Hear this. Your body is blameless. All that you've done in your body, all that you've done with your body, all the imperfections of your body, everyone is now holy, set apart to God. And every part is now without blame, and thus without shame. C.S. Lewis uh, gives a beautiful picture of what God does to us in this kind of sort of way in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace, the dragon, becomes who he was created to be through the cleansing power of the lion, Aslan. Eustace is telling the story to his cousin Edmund. I, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected a huge lion coming slowly towards me. And and one weird thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and and I was terribly afraid of it. You you may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I, I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came up close to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I have to do what it told me. So I got up and I followed it. And it led me on a long way into the mountains. There was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it, there was a well. And the water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself and my scales began to come off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly just as they had been before. And then the lion said, but, but I, I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it was it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like Billy O, but it's such a fun to, see, fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there I was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. You see, this is what God does to us, friends. As Aslan claws off the dragon skin, Eustace is restored. He is remade into the human he was meant to be. And this is what God has done for us in Christ. He has redeemed us in our bodies, cleansed us with the waters of baptism, and our bodies are then offered back to a merciful God. Eustace offers his soft new skin back to Aslan. It was tender and yet light and delicious. Our broken bodies are the way. We move in the world because God redeems our broken bodies. And we empty ourselves from empty bodies because this is our act of worship, offering back to God what he himself has transformed. Because of his mercy, we present our bodies, our broken but redeemed bodies, back to God. How do you offer them? How can the various parts of your bodies be offered back to God? John Stout says like this, Our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks, as well well like cooking and cleaning, typing and mending. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. And our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. May that be so for all of us. Let's pray. God, we um, are thankful to you for our bodies. All of them. In this room. The varied ways that you have made us and created us. Even the shameful pieces of us. God, we're thankful for even the shameful parts of our story. We're thankful for because just like Eustace, that's where you move in and your touch heals us. So I pray this morning that that's what you would do in us. That you might heal us, maybe our viewpoints of our bodies, that you might remind us that we offer our bodies not out of duty or out of law, but out of love. And it's rest. It produces rest in us as we offer our bodies. It's a good and merciful thing that we get to offer our bodies. I pray wherever we might need to be met this morning that you would meet us through your word. And even at the table, that these are tangible things that we put in our mouth and consume in our bodies. We take in the body of, and blood of Christ. And spiritually, you are present in those elements, and you change us from the inside out, even as we take them. So help us as we come to the table to have faith that this is what you can do in us, in our bodies. If we're struggling with sin this morning, I pray that that faith would be true, that the things that we're offering our bodies to, that you would encourage our hearts, that you are a God who's merciful to us, that because we offer our members to other things, that opens us up to mercy. that we this morning might respond to that mercy by offering our bodies once again to you. Help us to do that, God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.